Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to this very special edition of Atlanta Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia. It is time for Customer Experience Radio, brought to you by our friends at Heineken Company, and here's your host, Jill Heineck. Good morning, and uh, welcome to the show. I have some great guests here with us this morning, and um, first we have Mark Michelson. He's over 30 years of experience as a marketing researcher. He has extensive experience in designing and conducting studies that explore behavior, emotions, and sentiment related to customer and user experience. He's also the co-founder and executive director of the highly acclaimed CX Talks Conference Series, which brings together professionals from a variety of CX practices to learn and share about the growing CX profession. And Frank Chapek, also over 30 years of CX experience and is the founder and CEO of Customer Innovations, a company that helps organizations innovate products, services, and experiences that influence specific behaviors and drive the success of the business. He's worked on CX transformation projects with over 100 organizations in virtually every industry, including L'Oreal and Marriott. Welcome, guys. Thank you. <laughs> nice being here. Well, Mark, let's start with you. Can you give us a little bit back of your background and customer experience? I was doing customer experience before we called it customer experience. Um, back in the mid-80s is when I started my first research firm. And we were doing things like store design studies, product development studies, and service evaluations using mystery shopping. So doing focus groups, doing surveys, and working with design teams at some of the larger um, store design firms and product development firms. It wasn't until I heard the term customer experience and CX later, like in the 2000s sometime, that I realized I'd been doing it all this time. So they were calling it market research? It was just simply a research study, mm -hmm. yeah, using different methods. So these methods have evolved greatly over time, especially in qualitative with the use of the Internet and use mm -hmm. of mobile phones so we can capture the customer experience more vividly without having to travel as much as we had to in the past. I mean, in the past, we do ethnographies, and we'd have to go live with the customer, mm -hmm. so to say, and record. And I have a whole you know, video crew with me to watch them make pasta um, and sit there for two days. Now, you know, we can do that through mobile phones. We don't have to go there. They capture and send us what they like. And so the, the industry shifted greatly with the use of smartphones as far as the research side of the business. Mm -hmm. Uh, and using those tools to capture, but really had no uh, no name for it other than this is a store design study we're mm -hmm. going to do to transform how people buy automobiles, for instance. And, so it's kind of like uh, an undercover boss meets uh, the 2020, what would you do? Sort of. Sort of. Reactions. And I mean, mystery shopping <laughs> is its own business, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a cousin to marketing research. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate in my career that I actually helped uh, – I founded the Mystery Shopping Providers Association, which is now MSBA's Mystery Shopping Professionals Association as of two years ago. Um, and they have we have members all over the world who just hire mystery shoppers and just send them out to deploy to check on service. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different business model than, say, focus groups and ethnographies right. and in-depth interviews um, where we're talking with real customers and trying to get to the bottom of, of solving their problems. Wow. And that, and that's that's completely different from running a survey, right? Which is you know fixed questionnaire going right. out to thousands of people. 
Interesting. So, Frank, talk to us about your background. Sure. And actually, uh, build on a little bit on what Mark just said. Mm -hmm. um, customer experience has always been around and it's always been important. Um, I think what's changed is the way people think about it. Um, it. You know, the essence of the experience that people have is the driver of whether they are attracted to the business, whether mm -hmm. they buy their products, they, you know, they go in for service, uh, and then they return. It's always been important. I think the turning point was about 20 years ago um, when Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore uh, wrote The Experience Economy, which mm -hmm. is actually reaching the 20-year uh, the mark, um, I think, this year. Um, my background in this started 35 years ago. I was an MIT student and I uh, was doing research on the integration of design and cognitive science. So when you create something, you create a product, you create a service or say a retail environment, how is easy is it for people to make sense of what they're trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Is it easy for them to, to figure out? Is it easy for them to navigate? And in the course of designing it, can you do it in a way that has a positive influence on what people think and, and you know what, what they believe, what they really take away from that experience? And how does it make them feel? And then what does it really make them do? Um, and so from that point in time, it was about 1984, um, I went into a lot of uh, uh, retail design, service experience design, and then uh, 25 years ago this month, launched what I believe is the first uh, customer experience transformation practice anywhere. Um, in February of, of 1994, I joined a consulting firm called CSC Index. And Index had a very um, uh, significant wave of uh, notoriety mm -hmm. <laughs> and success because it created the whole concept of business reengineering, mm -hmm. which was a way of characterizing transformational change when an organization had to fundamentally um, uh, either restructure the way they operate or shift the um, experience that they create for customers. And so for 25 years now, uh, what was originally the, the uh, customer transformation practice at Index has grown into my current business, Customer Innovations. And over that 25 years, we've worked with a very wide range of companies on a particular side of experience. There's always a lot that you can do to enhance the experience that customers have. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are times when an organization, due to competitive pressure or the ambition that they have, has to fundamentally shift what they did or what they do for customers. And our first major definitive project was with the largest financial advisory uh, firm in the, in the country. And they had, at the time, I think, close to 20,000 financial consultants that were operating in an experience that was could be characterized as a transactional stock brokerage model. In other words, you have a broker, they make recommendations, you pay them based on executing trades. And the company uh, was observing what was happening in the market and said, we need to fundamentally shift what we do with customers. We're going to move from a transactional stock brokerage experience to fee-based wealth management. In other words, we're going to take a look at the client's entire portfolio, model where they want to be in the future, work backward from those fu that future desired state. 
and get paid based on assets under management rather than getting um, paid based on trades. Mm -hmm. If you think about that shift in the experience, it is a fundamental pivot to something that at the time no one really understood or knew about. And the, um, it changed the behavior in the course of what was a three or four year effort of about 30,000 customer facing employees, including all the financial consultants, their support people, the specialists and so forth. And it changed the way the company got paid by its customers and the way everyone inside the organization was compensated. Mm -hmm. So the company spent a billion dollars on that effort. And it will probably always be the largest project that we uh, took on. And that was about 20, 25 years ago. And since that time, we've worked with mostly with organizations that have had to make improvements that go beyond what we would characterize as better sameness. So a company needs to fundamentally transform mm -hmm. what they're doing. It's almost always a very large strategic effort that has to have um, everything from the executive team um, through all the all the project teams that have to do both, you know, transformative and incremental innovation projects really aligned to get it, get the organization out of its own way to do something fundamentally different. Yeah, it's and it has to start with leadership, right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> in order for it to to work. Yep. Uh, Mark, do you have an example similar to this that I do. you can share? Um, one of my first uh, big task projects was changing the way people are sold automobiles to help people buy automobiles. That sounds like a really simple um, shift, but it wasn't. The facilities of automobile dealers back in the 80s and from the 60s on were built to sell cars. They were Everything is uh, cubicles that are centered around the salesperson with all their trophies and fancy chairs, and you put two people in front of them in these nasty chairs, and they just want to get out of there. Um, the whole finance nightmare of, you know, Oz coming out behind the curtain and you're blessed or not, and then service in the rear. Um, so we looked at that uh, in the early 90s, late 80s. For General Motors, for uh, Ford, for Toyota, all these different manufacturers came together and said, we have to change this, particularly when it comes to women. We need to make it a more enjoyable experience and help people buy cars. So we looked at it as a facility. And there's an old saying, um, we shape our houses, they shape us. Mm -hmm. So these people were used to running in this certain pattern because of the way the building was structured. So we actually changed that behavior by changing the building and changing the seating structure and, and every process of that um, journey, if you will. So some of that old school setup still exists. I know that. I've oh, yeah. seen it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So what kind of results did they see? Well, um, Lexus dealership came out of that. Um, so did the uh, old Infinities. And... Um, so, that whole shift of dealership, it, it, it's out there now. And you'll see it if you go in. You can see the, the, those things. But I think the salespeople are continually and the management continually. People who are only interested in improving the moment are going to go back to their old ways that work. Um, and, and if you're interested in changing the long-term relationship with a customer, you're going to reap those benefits on the longer term. It may not be immediate benefit, but by shifting around the way they interact with people and the facility and the product, um, it, it has a long-term benefit. Now, 
there's plenty of other examples around that um, when it comes to everything from store design to hotel design to even museums. Um, you'll see these things changing all the time, and there's a reason for that investment. It's not just because it's getting old. It needs a refresh of how people are going to experience those buildings or those products. And, and so while not everyone's online, not, I don't think everyone ever will be on set. Um, a lot of the work I've done internationally, for instance, it was, it was funny for me. I went to Turkey and did a big study around um, electronics chain, kind of like a Best Buy, right? Except this company really didn't put the products out there for people to touch. They were afraid they'd steal them. And so <clears throat> they couldn't experience this whole wonderful world of giant screen TVs and mobile phones and things like that. Um, at the time, Turkey, and this was only in like the turn of the like, night, like 2000s, right? They had no concept of a limited time sale. And so everything was on promotion all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what's the deal? Well, it's just on sale. What's the deal? Well, it's come and get it. I mean, like, what, save now? <laughs> save how much? Nope, just promotion. And so the thinking that we had here in the States forever was just reaching Turkey in 2000. And when we shifted that around and made an experiential store for them, it shifted their business and they tenfold in their sales within a few years. So try it before you buy it. Yeah, and, and, and immerse yourself, you know, in living room settings where you can think about and visualize yourself bringing over the friends to watch the game, you know, and, and that wasn't part of their thinking. There was, here's a TV and it costs this much. So they had like a, like a pretend family room set up? Yeah, there was no yeah. aspirational marketing at all. Mm-hmm. It was just simply come and get it at this mm-hmm. price mm-hmm. anytime. Yeah. <laughs> What I love about, Mark, what you do is um, in in the end, it's all about people and what's important to them, what matters to them. Like you said, like helping them visualize the experience that they want to have. Um, it's relatively easy to go out and ask customers questions about what they like or don't like about their experience um, or you know, take a look at where their frustration points are or confusion points are. But you have to really dig much deeper than that in order to, to figure out what you're going to do to really significantly change the experience. Get to the bottom of what really matters to them, um, how they make sense of the choices that they've got. Um, and how you know what would be intuitively appealing for them to engage with? We're we're right in the middle of a really interesting project right now. Since you mentioned automotive, yeah. um, there is a particular time in the ownership of your vehicle where you get to the point where you're you need to replace your tires. Mm-hmm. And um, unless you're really a car person, that is not a journey or an experience that you even want to be on. And so we're in the middle of a very in-depth discovery of um, how people navigate that experience in order to help one of the major brands I figure out how to fundamentally transform it. And it, it's, it's one of the, the best examples of, um, you know, so much of the focus of customer experience has become kind of mapping the, uh, the customer's journey, figuring out how to improve it, figuring out how to automate it. 
this is one of the many examples where the where the solution is don't automate the journey <laughs> obliterate the journey so you want to be able to think about how to do something that would fundamentally remove this whole experience from people's lives and move it to more of a transformation how do i just get to the point where i don't even need to think about this Disruption yes. is a big big thing. And every, a lot of people want disruption, but they aren't necessarily willing to drag the whole organization towards but that. They don't know what that actually means or lo what it looks like. Right. I mean, I as a consumer don't want anything to do with my tires as much as I rely on them yep. for my life and my business. Have you ever taken a taxi? Of course. How about Uber? Of course. Okay, so which one's the better experience? Exactly. <laughs> and and thinking I want to take that. a taxi to the to the tire place. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, or take a taxi to shop while my car is being serviced. And, right. I never well, think about it. Well, there you go. That's that's a good example. She doesn't even want to be there, right? And, and so why be there? This 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 contrast between the taxi experience and the Uber experience, um, you know, really illustrates one of the things that I think is the most major issue um, in the, the way people are thinking about customer experience today. Um, IBM has done um, each year a CEO study that looks at uh, the things that are top of mind for them, the most mm -hmm. critical issues. And for the past few years, um, the one consistent data point that they've gotten from that um, survey that I think is most interesting is more than 90% of CEOs at this point believe that their business model may not be relevant for the next three to five years. So you've got executive leadership um, thinking about um, you know their business from the most strategic perspective, saying we need to fundamentally transform. Things are changing so much in terms of people's expectations and the options that are available to them and a more, more agile, technologically um, enabled business models that – there's there's been this um, this recognition that as there's been a wave of interest and investment in customer experience, um, I, I've been um, in conversations with the folks at Forrester. Mm -hmm. um, they've been um, Harley Manning, who is their the head of their customer experience research uh, practice, um, has been reporting that despite the massive waves of investment in customer experience for the past few years. Um, the overall performance of the businesses making those investments has not moved at all. So what's happened is um, while you have this pressing need to really think transformatively how, how to not be Uberized mm -hmm. if you're a cab company, mm -hmm. um, most of the CX investments are looking at the existing journey, how do we improve it, how do we automate it, how do we redecorate it? Um, uh, lipstick and, on a pig. Well, yeah. yes, and, and in fact, you know, as, as one of my re-engineering uh, colleagues said 25 years ago, that is the equivalent of rearranging the deck chairs on the mm -hmm. Titanic. So what you end up with is a whole series of incremental investments that are not driving hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of revenue and profitability benefits. They're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, and it's not going to add up to the level of transformational shift that is absolutely going to be required to stay strategically relevant 
And I think that's – it's raising the bar on the need to think really fundamentally about if we're serving these customers in their lives, what are they trying to accomplish? How do we make it dramatically easier for them to get done um, what they need to get done and don't subject them to a whole journey to get there? A lot of it is just defining why you're in business. Yeah. You know, and, and they forget that. They think, okay, well, I'm in business and everything is someone's dream. I mean, every piece of physical property or service is someone's dream, right? But once you have that and you build a factory around building that thing, um, whatever it is, it's hard to get outside your own head and understand you're in the business of helping people do X, mm-hmm. right? And so we always go back to that X and find out what it is you're trying to solve for. What are the jobs to be done? What's holding you back? What's what's moving you forward? And, and then what are the emotions around those things as you run into obstacles or you get moments of delight? And then how do we, instead of incrementally, as, as Frank says here, how do we radically just leap their business so they don't experience that traditional decline on a, on a bell curve. Right. Yeah. One of the, and the, 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 it's a, it's a real balancing act and there is this tension between needing to um, significantly enhance and, and incrementally kind of improve the performance of the existing business while you think, think through what's, what's our future business model look like? Where's our future growth and, and strategic success going to come from? Um, and if um, if any of the listeners haven't seen this already, we've, we we have a close relationship with um, really the premier transformation strategy firm in the world, a company called InnoSight that was originally founded by Clay Christensen up at Harvard Business School and a group of his colleagues. Um, they had a book that came out about a year and a half ago called Dual Transformation. And what it really describes is the process of, of balancing and integrating efforts to move forward from the present. Okay, here's the business that we have. We have a lot of invested capital in delivering everything that we're delivering today. Mm-hmm. How do we optimize the performance of the current business working forward from the present while you start to position for the next wave of growth and your your ability to comp and, um, uh, compete in the future, working backward from some idea of what that future state looks like. And that is just a brilliant way of describing the tension that needs to be resolved. And they describe those as two parallel transformations, forward from the present and backward from the future. And those things need to coexist and I think a lot of what we're seeing is that most organizations are making investments working just forward from the present. You know, how do we incrementally enhance, adorn, and automate the existing experience? And it won't get ahead of what IBM study uh, pointed out in terms of the need to really radically and significantly transform the business model. So where does the customer come into all of that, right? So, I mean – Customer surveys are one thing, but there's got to be something more in depth and more data driven. Absolutely, yeah. of, there, there's two types of, of experiential data. Okay, um, there's there's X data, which is all customer experience data and metrics. Some of these metrics, um, a lot of companies are hanging their hat on, like NPS scores. They really don't reveal a lot, and frankly, they don't apply in the B two B world. 
Um, and then you have O data. These are operational data. Now, bringing these two streams together for a client so that they understand how the customer's thinking and what they're doing and what are our operations, think, what's happening actual. Only in the past year are these two different data streams coming together. Just to demonstrate the value of that, um, SAP paid $8 billion to buy Qualtrics for their X data capability. And it's frankly a survey platform. That's a software platform that has a whole bunch of nice applications. It's a beautiful company. Um, there's a lot of great survey platforms out there. But when a company like SAP says, we're going to make the biggest technology purchase ever because it's going to matter to the future of our business to keep up on, in touch with our customer and mesh that in with operational data. It says something significant about this industry as far as customer experience and where it's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and it was X and O data. X right? and O data, yeah, yeah they know, call it XM now, XM data. Well, you know, I, I, I would actually add a third to that, and I, you know, I don't mean to be provocative no, no, here, but <laughs> the, maybe we call it C data. Right, because and like just give you an example. We've we've been working with an organization that was played a major role in the the formation um, and growth of the timeshare model. As you can probably guess, timeshares are the type of experience that baby boomers mm -hmm. and you know people with kind of established uh, um, and very forward-looking uh, ways of making vacation decisions mm -hmm. tend to uh, operate. And, and and you might agree to to show up for a timeshare presentation in exchange for some free vacation. Think about the next generation of more millennial and younger customers, their willingness to fall for sitting through a timeshare presentation. They'll look up in line and, online and go, is this really a good investment? And say, why would I do this? So you've got a business that has a tremendous amount of success and actually quite a lot of success left in the current business model. Mm. But it, at some point in time, it's going to need to shift. This is exactly one of those dual transformation problems. You're going to continue to optimize the current business because there's a lot of money still to be made in it, but you absolutely have to be working forward, working back, you know, backward from some idea of well, what the next generation experience. you have to know who your market is because it's not right. going to be typically right. the millennials unless they're right. inheriting right. that timeshare. Right. Well, and so, especially with Airbnb and VRBO and all these other yeah. options. So the, where I would say, you know, in addition to X and O um, data, you actually need to get to a level of understanding of customers. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll call it C data. And I actually really, I hate the term customer because it paints someone into a picture of mm -hmm. like what they buy from you and how they access your service. It's these people, mm -hmm. whether it be in their personal lives or in their businesses, you need to ask a set of projective questions that you can't just rely on an interview to get to that help you understand, okay, who are these people? What are they trying to accomplish in their lives and their businesses? How do they make sense of the options that are available and how those options are changing? 
um, what are the pathways that they're currently following to address their needs completely independent of a business's ability to serve them? You know, most journey mapping just defaults into touch points with a little bit of context behind it. You need to, to be looking out in order to be able to predict and create offerings that don't exist right now in order to get to like that Uber vision or any one of the things about a next generation um, family vacation or friend vacation experience that no one's delivering right now. Or if we're going to do something different about how people, um, you know, get new tires on their car, we don't want them to shop. We don't want them to navigate this. What would it look like? We need to and, – and you can't get to that by simple surveys. I mean, it, I mean Henry Ford, I, whether he actually said this or not, the quote that's attributed to him is, if I asked my customers what they wanted – all we'd have is faster horses. <laughs> yep. And so you really yeah. need to rely on a more future set of projective techniques, which is what we've been refining with the, the, the methodology that we have is what we call design for behavior, which is really trying to get out to those fundamental questions. Who are these people? What are they trying to accomplish? You know, what, how do they navigate the set of choices and, and pathways that they follow in their lives and their businesses to get those things done? And what could we do to radically transform their ability to get there? You know, when you're talking about uh, the, the whole idea of uh, making a big change while still monitoring the shop, right? Yeah, I, I think I think of Atlanta's highways. I mean, yeah. you know, because here we are in the midst, yeah, right around the corner here, you've got right here where mm-hmm. we are, you've got, they're building a whole new spaghetti junction mm-hmm. on top of what is already a big mess, mm-hmm. right? Instead of just widening the lanes, someone said, you know, we need to do it this way. And then all the new roundabouts around town, mm-hmm. love it. You know, it just yep. makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah. But, but you still have to deal with the fact that these physical things are there. Just like in business, you have to deal with the fact you have competition and you have, you know, human challenges of space and time. Right. It's, um, I'm always con- worried about or concerned about how when we're doing forward thinking and we're, tr- and we're looking back and we're looking forward at the same time and trying to figure out what this is going to do to move the business, where does the customer or the people who are actually using the service or buying the product or whatnot, who is talking to them during the experience? Is it – it seems like it's a lot of post-experience questionnaire – you know, questioning Uh, and then looking back 20 years and saying, oh, this is what somebody said. So in our business, we are focusing on every experience in the business, make at the time, making the notes so that when we go to work with the next client, we are taking note of what happened in the last transaction. Obviously, when you're doing high volume, higher volume at the same time, it's very difficult to do and track. I can can tell you our our approach, Um, for instance, the tire study. What we do is we find people who are going to buy tires. They, they, among a whole bunch of things that they might buy, we give them a long list to recruit them. And then we ask them, give them a month, and they keep a diary of this every day. Whatever they do, if they go online, if they talk to a friend, if they're you know, you know, admiring a tire on a car in a parking lot, we want to know what it is, and we want them to capture it in the best way, easiest for them to do that. If it's with their mobile phone, if it's on video, if it's through text, if it's whatever, they have the ability to do that. And we had 120 people doing this for a month. We track and monitor what they do. And then afterwards, we bring them into a discussion to discuss the post activity, but dig deeper in a discussion around 
things that they can't even access. They can't begin to talk about their emotions when it comes to this. Mm. But we show them projectives and we have them submit their own ideas of what visually they're going through in their head. So we, we look at these projectives, which are actually um, coded to different emotional states, and we can tell exactly where they're feeling at different parts of that journey, not only live, but in, re- in retrospect. Then we take it a step further, and we, we have our own ideas about what we could do for that transformation. And we'll bounce that off people in webcam interviews and show them and have that one-to-one relationship and discussion. Then we'll take it out only then. Well, we take it out to a survey to start validating and try to figure out how much of an opportunity this is and does it need tweaking. So that's a kind of a typical approach. Yeah. And this what – I, what I love about that and is the, the, the use of these projective techniques get beyond what, uh, what customers can just articulate about what they think they want to see. I mean, we. One of my fav- favorite examples of this is we we set up and help facilitate Nationwide's Enterprise On Your Side program, one of the larger projects that we've done over the years. And as we were going through every aspect of the experience that we're looking at automotive insurance, and you know, it's there was a lot of another fun thing in my another life. yeah another fun thing. <laughs> at least right? advertising's good on this, right? So we part of this process, you know, these projective set of techniques is, is getting to the bottom of the basic metaphors that people use to make sense of complex things. You know, you know, classic example of metaphorical thinking is people visualize time as, you know, as uh, using a location and journey-based metaphor. They envision time, you know, the future being in front of them. They're standing physically here in the present. The past is behind them. Fact is, time doesn't have anything to do with any of that. That's just a physical metaphor that you use. So these projective techniques, you know, like looking at images and help. Say, we went out with a group of uh, automotive insurance customers with these images, and what we found is that, surprisingly enough, People envisioned their policy as a container. I put stuff in, like premiums, and I only get any value out when something comes out of that container. And at the time, all the automotive insurance companies were communicating with their customers saying, look, if you're, if you're you know, a good driver, we'll give you a better rate. That requires customers to be good at not only math, but probability. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's like you took probability in, in school. There's a reason why after 10,000 years of mathematical thinking, Blaise Pascal came up with the idea that something may or may not happen. The idea of prob- <laughs> probability was he was promptly excommunicated, right? <laughs> People just don't make sense of this complex risk-reward um, trade-off like an actuary <laughs> might working for an insurance company. So we said, look, they're thinking about it like a container. Your experience is not designed like that. So one of the things that we helped them come up with was a a container-based design for that automotive experience process. So this was several years ago. What what we came up with was called the vanishing deductible. Every year that you drive without an accident, stay a nationwide customer, will take $100 off your deductible until after, surprise, surprise, you stay long enough and you're a good driver long enough that the deductible goes away or basically vanishes. And the first reaction with the actuaries is that's the stupidest thing that I ever heard because it doesn't actually work like that. 
goes, it doesn't matter because that's the physical way that people make sense of the experience. That's the pain people feel and is you know, the monetary part of something they'll never probably touch. And, and Nationwide <laughs> was brilliant in right. doing this. They launched this vanishing deductible. It had a significant impact on retention. Mm -hmm. It was a signature difference when they were, came to acquiring new customers. And it not only uh, transformed the performance of their business, but it changed the competitive dynamic in the entire industry. Oh, it did. Because all <laughs> of a sudden, everyone mm -hmm. is now paying their customers back using a container-based design. And so that one projective technique, you know, that of really surfacing that underlying metaphor, not only changed the company, but it changed competition in in an industry. Mm -hmm. And so interesting. Yeah. It's just I mean who would have thought that car insurance wasn't interesting? But this is the backstory, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so the, this is where that, those projective techs – you have to design the experience from the mental model of mm -hmm. the experiencer. Um, and people can't share their mental model because they don't have enough understanding of like it, – it's just the water that they're swimming in. It's just it's, how they make it, sense of the world. I, I can't necessarily articulate every experience detail by detail either. Yeah. So that is the problem, right? Trying right. to get that out. Yeah. And the other thing that adds into the, the joy of experience is the expectation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of people don't really measure that. Um, when it comes to stuff like NPS, um, it's not about the expectation. And, and so much of, um, you know, you, you hear about a good movie or a great restaurant from a friend, you go and it's like, mm, meh. But that expectation, I'm not saying lowered expectations, but at least it get to that par level and exceed it is where you start having more recursive, you know, relationships. Right. So where are you seeing in y'all's experience um, the online posting of reviews or you know facebook posts or instagram comments or well etc cetera, etc cetera. we started up the social media research association a few years ago and there's a lot of companies focused on trying to make sense of this fire hose of data um, there's a couple of companies out there that have, have been managing the reviews for all of these companies for a long time um, called uh, Bazaar, Market Bazaar, B-A-Z-A-R. Anyhow, they what they do is they go in there and mine that data all the time for trends and, and or um, brand protection, if you will. And a lot of these companies out there that have the, the technology developed to do the analytics on it, um, are, it's interesting because there's not a lot of people – buying into that yet because they view that as unstructured or soft data and and that kind of that kind of opinion data we're finding does have impact it's just really hard to get your hands around the fire hose and sift through the things that make sense and react on a timely basis to it now i don't know that i would design something based on social data alone as a matter of fact i don't think i'd take any data stream and design around it but Several different angles on any study are going to give you more context and more creativity to think about things for the future. I'm interested to see, and I and I haven't talked to the GRA about this, but um, the Restaurants Association, what they see from like a Yelp, um, mm -hmm. where that's where a lot of consumers are going to review restaurant experiences and to see how that really does impact a restaurant's overall business down the line. Yeah. You know, one of the things that it it might be an interesting 
shift in terms of thinking about this review information. There is how you process that information um, in terms of the actual reviews, whether someone gave three, four, five stars, or one star, whatever. The other is that as this has become more present in our way of doing business, people are very smart about reverse engineering in an, in an intuitive way, what is this actually telling me? So when I take a look at – we've interviewed people um, in terms of how they make sense of the review data and how it affects their behavior. So there's almost always going to be a lot of five stars that happen immediately <clears throat> on, um, on um, you know, like having an experience. And a lot of that is um, – being able to justify that I bought something, right? So people are always really happy with their car right after they got it. And it's, it's um, you know, it's because they're kind of, it, they're reinforcing how smart they were in making this decision, right? There's always going to be people that had a bad experience at the one, two, or three star level. If you take a look at the reviews, people are just flaming about some really bizarre, you know, like thing that happened to them and people will end up writing that off. So what I would be interested in is the mental model and mental processing of the people that are absorbing this information and how it influences the choices that they make. And that's a second-order um, analysis. Rather than the information itself, how is the information affecting people? And people are evolving a better way to understand and to take into account that review data um, as we've gotten more history with it. And that's, I think, what really matters. Interesting on that is... Um Several different kinds of, of, of shopping behaviors. Um, and let's just break it down in, in behavioral economics. You've got fast thinking and you got slow thinking. You've got finder and decider. If you go grocery shopping, for instance, you know you're going to get stuff and you know exactly where it is. Right. That that's I'm going in there because I know I just got to get these. This is my shopping list. Get in and get out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Versus you get stuck in some new category. and You go, oh, I've never seen that before. You might pause there for a little while because now all of a sudden you're you're clicking into all these other deeper, slower thinking, trying to process what it is. Certain purchases you can make without thinking at all. I mean, it's just a gut instinct. And, and sometimes those are major purchases like a house. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel it. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm here. Uh, versus uh, slow thinking. You might take forever to buy a tire because now you're confused by all the options and treads and what does it do for me in the rain and blah, blah, blah. So understanding that related to your product, how people are making decisions, that fast thinking, slow thinking is inherent within all people. Yeah. You know, I, I, this might be, you know, 35 years of, of bias in my thinking, <laughs> but I got started in this focused on this integration of cognitive design, you know, cognitive science and design. And I believe, you know, along the lines of what you're just saying, that we're still emerging um, a, a model for doing cognitive experience design, which is how do you really create things that resonate with the way people think? And you can't rely on, you know, quick feedback, you know, you know, like, you know, the, the, like the surveys or things like that. You actually really need to dig into um, an integration that's still emerging, which is everything that we are continuing to know um, it, it, about how people think and how they feel about the options that they're in and how that influences their behavior. 
um, design has not really incorporated um, that way, that level of rigor in terms of the cognitive processing. So, but and we we have this this management fad that's taken over called design thinking, which has some positive elements to it because, you know, like it's really good to get out and understand customers and experiment and all the things that are really part of what I believe is really good about design thinking as, as a kind of a wave of activity. What, what's missing is the design for the way people think. It's like you got to design around the way people think and how it influences them. And if they're shopping in that new category, as you said, and the next generation of developments in the experience design world are going to have to evolve a much tighter integration between cognitive science and design, particularly because we're going to be creating much more um, intelligent tools that we need to operate with. So for example, if I create some um, um, artificially intelligent or robotic-based device to help doctors practice medicine better, it's not as important how we make those devices smarter. It's how do we um, create them and offer them in a way that resonates with the way doctors think and the way doctors learn. And so it's the integration of the, the person and this intelligent machine that's going to need to drive an enhanced understanding of cognitive experience design. And a lot of the times you don't recognize a need for that. Um, right. uh, a good example is a smartphone. I mean, I remember when it came out, I thought, that's the last thing I need. You know, I don't need who in the heck's going to need something like that when I've got a phone already. Right. But it wasn't until it just became everywhere. It was ubiquitous. And now it's like, how did I live without this? It's become my brain. Mm-hmm. You know, it does so much more. It's that thinking of of designing around a future state that, that sometimes you just have to take a creative leap on. Um, and that's that creative leap is often informed through observation good observation of, of what is and what's going on, understanding um, your competitive sets and positioning within that, and leaping, you know, take a leap out to, to really solve around a future vision. And, and that people don't even know they have. They don't even they can't even express it. Just mm-hmm. just, just like, you know, faster horses or, you know, w- right. would you want to ride in a, in a tube in the air with peanuts thrown at you? No. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> you well, I mean, it, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, when the, when it's in a consumer based situation, it's important. Take a look at I mean, in the news now. The, this failure of cognitive experience design with a Boeing aircraft mm-hmm. that has an intelligent uh, de- um, uh, system that does not operate well with the way pilots are trained mm-hmm. and their natural behavioral pathways. So you have a system, an intelligent, supposedly intelligent system that is fighting the cognitive and behavioral model of the operator. It's, an, it's a failure of cognitive experience design in it's my mind. It's a big mind. problem. And, I mean, we're going to end up with the same thing as we start to move to more semi-autonomous vehicles. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if I got a car that's doing a pretty good job of driving on its own, and so I'm checking my email on the phone, it's keeping me in its lane, and I'm following some, um, some pickup truck, a ladder flies off the back of that pickup truck, and I literally have 250 milliseconds 
to re-engage in the experience in order to avoid a crash because the system, you know, is that's a far from equilibrium state. Um, when I'm in, engaged in driving that car, I, I, I have a chance of reacting that quickly. If I need to disengage from something else that I'm doing in order to like focus my attention, figure out what's going on, observe, orient, decide, and act right quickly enough. I mean, we have not yet figured out that integrated cognitive design of the man-machine interface, um, you know, in a, like a semi-autonomous, uh, you know, car. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities to unfortunately experience bad things that happen while we're still in this state. Of and then not hopefully good things out. will come out of those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunate circumstances. Right. Yeah. And improve everything. So I'm well, guessing, yeah. Mark, yep. that... We're going to be talking a lot about these types of things at CX Talks. Absolutely. So um, I wanted to make sure that we talk about CX Talks sure. a little bit. Um, CX Talks, is, is it started with a, a CXPA event, which is the C Customer Experience Professional Association. And we wanted to have something different and have a lot of speakers. So we had 10 speakers give 10-minute presentations, and this was four years ago. So they're like TEDx style? Like a TEDx thing, yeah. exactly. So we, you know, we took the name talks and mm -hmm. said, well, let's make it about CX. That format caught on. And, and we thought, well, what if other associations who also think they created CX, you know, get involved like the mystery shopping providers or the retail store designers or the, the American marketing association or, or whoever. And so we invited and had 18 different associations at our first inaugural kickoff in Atlanta uh, three years ago. And within that context, we had uh, 24 speakers the first time and we've amped it up to now we have 30 speakers on one stage giving uh, presentations on what made a difference for them in their career and with their companies regard regarding CX. Um, we're planning these events right now um, for, for Dallas on June 10th and Chicago on August 12th and Atlanta in October. And so we're always looking for people who have breakthrough stories to tear, something, some kind of tip that people can take home with them. And each speaker, we want to make sure that we get good representation across industry lines. So we have everything from hospitals to banks to food service to automotive uh, and, and everything in between. We, you know, it, it's amazing who comes up with these things. And then we also want to make sure within those different industries, we're covering different um, different aspects or silos of the experience. So we have researchers, we have designers, we have service people, we have tech people. And, and so the idea is within each market area, we're able to bring people together, build their knowledge base about the different verticals, different industries, and how they can make those ideas come to life in their own business. And, and beyond that, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you get to hang out with people who really care and are passionate about CX. So um, I encourage anyone hearing this to, to go to C, uh, cxtalks.org and fill out the Be a Speaker form that's right at the top. Just click on that, be a speaker, and we're always looking for speakers. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to leave here. I'm going to go and select the speakers for Dallas, and we're going to look at Chicago as well. So if, any, if anyone wants to be a speaker, cxtalks.org. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Any last um, tips or takeaways for our listeners that are you know, in the CX space and um, maybe uh, something based on oh, – yeah. Mark, I saw the um, light bulb. Yeah, I mean <laughs> – there's a lot of lot of new titles in management in CX. 
personally, I, I like to ask people what, you know, what is CX, right? And, and for me, it's kind of the bridge between operations and marketing um, that the CEO used to mind. And the CEO is now busy minding other things like, you know, cash flow and finance and things like that, or building a factory somewhere. And, and, and so this role, in my view, has sort of evolved to fill that void and build bridges between all the different business units of an organization. Um, CXPA has, has a meeting next week where we're going to really delve into some of the career options and how do you become a CMO? How do you, you know, that's a chief, uh, CXO. How do you become a CXO? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what are some different things you need to take care of in your own education in, in order to be effective in those roles? So, you know, I would just point towards CXPA as being a good model for that. Um, it was one of the first, it is the first one to really make sense out of this industry and, and break it down into the various components that make um, someone have a, a successful career and help companies uh, thrive along that path. Yeah, you know, what I would encourage people to do, and this is, this is also coming a bit from my, my side of customer experience, which is more on the transformation side, is that when you when you look at the existing experience there's almost always hundreds of things that you can do to enhance it you know incrementally faster maybe you've got an app that makes it easier to get information or to navigate some element to it you got a long list of ideas um, based on some analysis of what you get getting back from customer feedback um, I actually think um, there, there's a trap associated with idea-driven innovation. In other words, let's take a look at, at the current state of the experience, figure out how we're going to improve it. Mm -hmm. I think the, the antidote for that is to start with outcomes. And so I'll give you an example. We worked with a, with a large um, B2B service provider that had a division where they really felt that was a challenge to serve customers in that division. We, we you know, said, we realize you've got a lot of ideas about things you might do differently, but let's think about the outcomes first. You had $650 million in this business. If we said we need to do another $350 million in business over the next 30 months. How would we get to that outcome? In other words, you're going to add very significantly to customer acquisition, retention, and profitability. Figure out the outcomes first. $650 million to a billion. What's the time frame? What's the margin that we're going to preserve? If we get to that business outcome, there's often a very small number of customer behaviors that are going to get it. Like for this particular company, it was we need to increase um, the renewal rate, mm -hmm. you know, by 5 percent. We, you know, we're going to move, move uh, retention from 80, 88 to 92 percent. But more importantly, we need to be able to get customers to, to willingly – uh, accept a price increase that reflects the enhanced value that we're going to get. So you figure out the business outcomes, then you work towards, okay, if, if we're going to get to that, what do we need customers to do differently mm -hmm. in order to get to that business outcome? And then think about the experience. Mm -hmm. What is it about the experience that we need to create that'll get us to those customer behaviors That'll get us to those business outcomes. And very often, you end up with a much shorter list 
of things than the hundreds of things that you could do to incrementally enhance the experience following this idea-driven innovation approach. Thinking outcomes-based actually really um, significantly clarifies things. You know, for example, we've got a, 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 a one of the really disruptive um, healthcare company that we're working. They're, they're working to reinvent the whole care model for seniors that have multiple chronic conditions. The executive team put a stake in the ground that says, we want a double membership within the next 24 months. In other words, we're going to have twice the number of customers to, you know, 24 months from now than we do now. So now what do we need to change about the experience to get there? And sometimes making those big, bold moves, it's much clearer what you need to do. And you have the executive support and the business case built in from the start. Because you know what? If you're going to get another $350 million of, of uh, revenue from this division, it'll get people's attention. You know, So you start with executive alignment and commitment to a set of business outcomes and then work backwards from there. Um, and I think what happens is, unfortunately, there's been, you know, like people get put in customer experience roles and they've got stuff that they need to do. They start looking around at what they can do to improve the current experience. But it, unless it really ties to something that has a competitively relevant enhancement in business performance, it, it runs the risk of this rearranging, rearranging the right. deck chairs on the Titanic thing. Right. And so I would say, the most important thing Lead with is outcome. starting out is build alignment on outcomes mm -hmm. and work backwards. It's a moonshot. Yes. <laughs> yes. Excellent. I so appreciate you both coming in today and joining us on um, CX Radio today. Mark and Frank, thank you so much. Hey, it's a pleasure being here. Love what you're doing. Thank yep. you. 